1 Samuel chapter 10, but remember as we go into this, they wanted a king like all the other nations. They wanted the pomp. They wanted the, uh, the show. They wanted the palace. They wanted the weddings. And I have to admit to you, I have that romantic side of me as well. I, I do like that. But this is what they wanted it over God being their king. And that was a slap in his face. And that uh, is serious business. But God told him, go tell the people that when you give power to one man like that, he's going to oppress the entire nation. He's going to take the best of the best of the best. Rather than coming to God, it's going to come to man. He's going to take your best architects and they're going to be working on his palaces. They're going to take the best cooks and they're going to be cooking in his, uh, for him. You're going to take the best seamstress and they're going to be working for him. And on top of that, he's going to go out and say, you, you're my new wife and you, you're my new wife. And, and this precious little girl that you had a, a vision for is now gone. She's one of dozens of girls in harems. And the harems, guys, were brutal places. They, they knew that if the girl was ugly, the king wouldn't want them. So at night, the, the, the other uh, women of the concubine would come and put acid or scratch, a permanent scratch, into the face or poke out the eye, make their, the bride uh, or the concubine of the king ugly so he would not want her anymore. And so it was a very dangerous place to be. And, uh, and so this is the kind of life you're going to be giving yourself to. And the people said, okay, we understand. Give us a king anyway. And uh, there Samuel said, I will not cease to pray for you. No matter how foolish you get, I'm going to continue to pray for God's blessings on your life. Well, remember Saul had been going up looking for donkeys. Donkeys were the Rolls Royces of the day. And he finally got just an extreme distance away. And he said, my dad's going to quit caring about those donkeys. And he's going to start worrying about me. We need to get out of here. And his servant said, you know, but here in this location, unbeknownst to Saul, there is a mighty man of God named Samuel. Really? Okay. And if we give him some money, I happen to have a little bit of money here. Um, Maybe he'll predict and tell us where these these uh, uh, mules are. And again, you know, this is their value of this guy. He's the guy that helped fight, find donkeys. When in reality, he's the leader of the nation at this time. And so how minimized Samuel was in their eyes. Saul had no spiritual uh, thoughts whatsoever. So they go in there and... Uh, and there Samuel takes control and says, yes, I know who you are, Saul. You're the anointed of the entire nation. You'd be the king of Israel. Blew Saul away. But the very next day, in a very private moment, Samuel has told everybody else to leave. And Samuel is with Saul. 
And Samuel took the flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Is it not because the Lord has anointed you commander over his inheritance? Guys, this is going to blow your mind. But God does much that we find in the Bible out of concession, not out of invention. When you look through the law, for example, it said, uh, okay, I allow, because, because of the hardness of your heart, you can have more than one wife. But then he describes it, and if you treat the second wife the way you're supposed to treat her, it's not worth having second wife. But he knew that you could bend the branch so far before it would break. And so he said to them, yes, out of concession. And this is one of those things out of concession. You know, here's your king uh, that you guys wanted. And he took a flask of oil. In Psalm 133, when they took a flask of oil and dumped it upon Aaron to be the high priest, it describes the oil coming down, matting the hair, coming down off the hair, on soaking the beard, and from soaking the beard to soaking the clothes. So if we were to do a biblical anointed with oil, it would take, I don't know, about a gallon or so. And uh, you would have to have a, you know, an oil slick spot, you know. (laughs) You'd say, okay, come on over here, and it runs down here. And, you know, uh, it it would be very difficult and very elaborate and very costly, I might add, uh, to do that. And so here, if you would, Samuel or Saul, this smelly guy who's out running around trying to find these donkeys day after day after day, and now there's beautiful oils. Let me tell you something. In the Arab world, they have perfected perfumes. And you can get scents there. You can get the smell of various oils that are very, very expensive but are the most amazing smells. And you can get a little tiny, tiny bottle, I mean the size of a a dime. And you take one drop, that's all it takes, and you put it behind each ear and you will smell it for weeks. It is that strong. It just won't go away. And so you don't need, you know, dump a whole bunch out or spray a whole bunch on 10 times. Just one little dab will do you. And uh, they truly have perfected it. And these oils would have been drenched the hair just, you know, into the nostrils and over the clothes. And and everybody would have been like, whoa, you know, what is that smell? And look at that gooey guy. Um, somebody's been anointed. It would have been very, very clear. And in verse two, when you have departed from me today, you will find two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Bethlehem at Zalzah. Now, when I first started going to Israel 
we could actually drive right up to Rachel's tomb. And uh, what, a, what a find it is. Three, four thousand years old. Uh, the little tiny piece of land that, that Abraham bought and he buried her there. Unfortunately, today, it's in the West Bank area. It's in the control. It's supposed to be in the Israeli control, but in reality, uh, because of bombers and stuff, if they see Israelis try to go there, they will shoot them and bomb them. And so, uh, and since then, they have basically destroyed it. Because they knew it was sacred to the Israelis, they've destroyed it. But uh, amazing, I just always love to go and just say, guys, just sit here and just try to wrap your mind around something that is about three, 4,000 years old. The tomb of Rachel, amazing, amazing. And so anyway, that tomb, he comes there, a very holy, a very, very sacred place. And so you're gonna find men there, but he says, Two men. That's sort of unusual. There normally be flocks of people around there, but not today. Today there's going to be two men. Of course, there could have been 20 men, right? If you have 20 men, you also have two men. Sometimes people get confused in the Gospels on that. You know, I think of the, the Gospel of Gesinnered, and it says there was one uh, guy who was out of his brain who was not allowing people to go through the uh, highway, and he was trying to kill people, and Jesus came over, and he came running to Jesus, and he ended up having a legion of demons, and Jesus cast him out, and he was in his right mind, and went back to the city, and preached to the city. But we find in one story that it was all focused on this one man who had this tremendous conversion. But as we read in the other gospel, there's actually two men going sort of through the same thing. And you say, well, why was the Bible wrong? It wasn't wrong. Just the storyteller left out the, the other one. That's okay. We find that with the, the, the Jesus at the mount. Some will say, and there was an angel there. We know later there were two angels there. But they were so overwhelmed with the one angel speaking, they just forgot about the other angel. And so again, when you have 20 or 5, you also have 2. And so there could have been more people there, but in particular, there were two men that would stick out in, in that territory of the Benjamin, of Zel, Zelza, and they will say to you, the donkeys which you went to look for have been found. So how would they know that? A clear, supernatural word of knowledge giving him a sign, a confirmation that this is of God. And now your father has ceased caring for the donkeys and is worrying about you, saying, what shall we uh, do about my son? Then you shall go on forward and there and come to the tenebrath tree of Tabor. Tabor was a, it's a unique mountain to this day. When you look at it, it's like, this can't exist. It's a completely round mountain. If you were to take a bowl and you were to 
cut it in half, or a basketball, there you go, that's a better analogy, a basketball, and cut the basketball in half and put it on the ground like a mountain, if it was much bigger basketball, that's what it looks like. It's, it's rather bizarre. And so we see here that, that at ter- another very key location, very easy to know and find, um, you're going to go there next and for more confirmation. Now, in this location of confirmation, uh, then there were men coming or going up to God at Bethel. We'll meet you. One carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, another carrying a skin of wine. So again, this word of knowledge, very, very specific. Two of this and one of this. And, and, and they will greet you and give you the two loaves of bread, which you shall uh, receive from their hands. And after that, you shall come to the hill of God, where the Philistine garrison is, and it will happen when you have come to the city and you will meet the group of prophets coming down to the high place with the stringed instruments, the tambourines, the flute, the harp before them, and they will be prophesying. So there's going to be a time where these guys have been in the presence of God and they've been seeking God and they're getting words of knowledge and prophecy and God's Holy Spirit's pouring out upon them in an Old Testament fashion. And as this is happening, you're to mingle in, right in to this of what's going on. And in verse 6, And the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into, I look at this, guys, another man. Parents, stop for a moment you don't have a pen, get a pen later. Mark this verse. Isn't this what we want for our children? We want them to be changed into a deep spiritual person. You can't do it. All the Bible reading, all the music, all the encouragement, all those things are great. They're helpful, but you can't do it. Notice what it says there. The Spirit of the Lord will come upon them. Like on the day of Pentecost, the Epia experience, the Holy Spirit coming upon them. Now, in the New Testament, when Jesus Christ died and rose again, the Holy Spirit can come in them. But in the Old Testament, like in the New Testament, when the Holy Spirit comes upon a person, they can have power. They can prophesy. They can do miracles. As a matter of fact, Jesus said that in the New Testament, there are going to be believers that have an Old Testament experience with God. The Holy Spirit's going to be upon them and they're going to have power and they're going to say, Lord, didn't I prophesy in your name? Work miracles, cast out demons. And he says, yes, you did. In an Old Testament fashion, I was able to work with you like Balaam's donkey. But a whole new covenant, Hebrews tells us, a new and living way has come about. And what is that new and living way? It's where God's Holy Spirit comes into us. 
And his spirit lives in us as a seal for the day of redemption. And with the whole out, the Holy Spirit living in us. And, and far more important than the power of God is the love of God. Well, I cast a demon out of somebody. I had patience. But, but, but I, I, you know, like, like Jesus, you know, I, I healed the sick. Great. But I, had, I was full of joy. Well, how is that trumping that? In God's eyes, it's greater that you would be full of the Holy Spirit, having love, joy, peace. Finish with me. Patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. <laughs> what did Jesus say of John the Baptist? Guys, John the Baptist is now dead and he was mourning. And he said this, out of all the men who have ever set foot on this planet, the greatest man who has ever lived, God would know, is John the Baptist. But I tell you, and by the way, it says in John, John the Baptist did no miracles. (laughs) He never had a word of knowledge, word of wisdom, a healing, a translation, nothing. But this is what Jesus goes on to say. But he said, the least in the kingdom of God, the struggling Christian, as Jude says, his garments smell this uh, still have the stench of sin on him as he's being caught up, uh, his little, uh, you know, 501 jeans being seared by the fire <laughs> uh, of hell as he's being taken into heaven. He's saying that he is greater than John the Baptist. Why is that? Because one person having the Holy Spirit in their life is greater than all the quadrillion miracles that it could ever happen. And so we got to understand this isn't a born-again experience. This is the Holy Spirit coming upon Saul, and he's prophesying. And notice what he says here. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he be turned into another man. It's a wonderful thing, God's work of the Spirit. Guys, but it's not finished until we are walking in the fruit of the Spirit, until we are not accidentally being patient every once in a while. It's amazing how guys can be so kind and lovey-dovey and romantic when they want to have sex. Or the kids can be so helpful. Let me help you carry those in the house, Mom. Is there anything else I need to do? I cleaned the bathroom already. And, you know, is there, is there anything else that's on your heart that I could... You want to borrow the car later, right? Uh, well, it had nothing to do with it, but yeah. It's amazing how we can accidentally have the fruits of the Spirit evident in our life. But the fruit of God's spirit from the love of God's spirit because 
He is in us, and in him we live and move and have our being. We are just saturated with Jesus, walking, talking, living like him. But not so for Saul. He was having the power of God's spirit, but even then, he was changed into a new man. Guys, we can pray for that tonight for our kids, right? Amen? We need the power of God's spirit, the love of God's spirit, God's spirit to fall upon them. Listen to me. Throughout America right now, the churches that are filled up with people are filled up with people well over 50 in their 60s, 70s, and 80s. The young people are not in church. When I was in Hungary for the very first week of se- weekend of September, which was our weekend uh, as well, uh, 26th anniversary, but it was their 20th anniversary. And the people got up, the Methodists and the Baptists and the, uh, the Lutheran and all the different heads of the denominations got up and said, we were toast, we were dying. We were, we were going non-existent. Because... All that was in the church was a handful of old people. Praise God for the old people. Don't go. (laughs) Don't go anywhere. But our kids were interested in the word and worship and prayer and evangelism and and seeking the Lord. It wasn't there. And then Golgotha came, is how the name of Calvary Chapel. And all of a sudden, our kids started going to church again, singing these songs with guitars and, and drums and worshiping God. And, and God began to do this work in their spirit. They began to obey their parents and clean their rooms and get good grades. And they had a vision to, to serve the Lord. And, and many of them now are back in our churches doing our Sunday school because we have kids there now. And there are ushers, our worship leaders, and they're causing our community to come to Christ through that and how they were singing the praises of Calvary Chapel in Hungary. And I, I say to you, guys, listen to me. If we do not have the children along with us, we have nothing. Number one, do not Poison the well that you drink from. Do not go home and say, oh, you know, do you notice Brett? He sang that same song three weeks in a row. I am sick of that song. Did you notice nobody greeted us? Nobody said hi to us? Did you notice that the donut was a little stale? They said they were fresh that morning, but ugh, man. Get, wish I could get my money back for that. And, uh, you know, Brian, he is long-winded. Man, that guy. I, I'd give him 20 bucks to just shut up. And couldn't find a parking place. And Guys, if you are doing this in any way, shape, or form... You are telling your children this. Church is stupid. Church is not worthy of their time. Church is insignificant. Church is not a place where people are being saved and changed and growing 
and kept. Guys, I, I spent the worst year of my life in Costa Rica. And in that year, there was not a Bible teaching church. And I'll tell you what, I fell in love with our church over and over again. And I'll tell you what, on a regular basis, I just say, Lord, thank you for Chuck Smith's example. Thank you, God, that I don't have to come up with some sermon with, you know, t- you know three jokes and, you know, two relevant uh, newspaper articles and, and, you know, have the three points and be, you know, up and down and, and, and you know, in essence, entertain, entertaining everybody. I don't have that pressure. Thank God that Chuck just gets up there and teaches line upon line, precept upon precept, how it sets me free, and how a group of people are hungry for that. What a miracle of miracles. And Lord, thank you. Thank you for the church.